Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the Wednesday, October 4th, 2017 edition of the Carolina Weather Group. We're really happy to have you tonight. As you probably have heard, the tropics are active once again, and that's kind of what we're talking about tonight. We have Will Simmons on from the Air Force Reserve. He's actually one of the hurricane hunters who flies into these crazy storms, and so we uh, look forward to having Will on with us for the hour and kind of talking about what all he does and, and kind of some memorable stories of, of flying into hurricanes. So uh, thank you for joining us tonight, Will. We look forward to it. Uh, before we start, though, tonight, this is a live broadcast. So if you have any questions or comments, uh, during the show, please uh, feel free to uh, reach out to us. You can do that uh, many different ways. You can follow us on Twitter, Carolina WX Group. Uh, you can comment on the Facebook page, or James has the uh, Periscope and the Facebook live stream going as well as, as the uh, YouTube live stream going. So many ways for you to communicate with us tonight and submit your questions if you have any for Will. And then if you are uh, listening on the rebroadcast, we'll kind of give you some social media outlets that uh, you can follow what the hurricane hunters do as they uh, fly into these storms. So before we uh, get into uh, the tropics tonight, let's quickly go around the panel, let everybody introduce yourself and talk about uh, what the weather's like in their area. So we'll start as we always do out to our west. I'm gonna bring in Eric, who's in the uh, Memphis area. Eric, how's uh, the weather there uh, in West Tennessee? It's too warm, Scotty. It's too <laughs> warm. Summer came back again this week. Uh, fortunately, the dew points are down a little bit, but um, we're uh, we're 87 yesterday, mid 80s. Uh, until we get this big front coming through next week, we're really looking forward to fall it's sticking around at some point. Uh, and it looks like it's about a week out, so we're gonna hang in there a little bit while longer. And uh, it's getting pretty dry here too. The only only decent rain we've gotten in the last six weeks or so have been remnants of tropical systems. So I hope I hope that we get some rain, but maybe not from another tropical system coming over the uh, mid south. We'll see how that works out. All about those uh, models and, and where that track takes. Uh, what soon was soon to be Nate. Uh, let's go to the east part of Tennessee and uh, eastern Tennessee in the Bristol area. Let's bring in Ricky Matthews tonight. Ricky, uh, you've been away from the past couple of weeks, so uh, we are happy to have you back tonight. How have you been? Oh, I was almost awake in tonight. We had a uh, mi minor, moderate uh, chemical explosion uh, at our nearby chemical plant today, and uh, that was fun stuff. Uh, no injuries reported from that. I had a little shelter in place that was in effect for a couple hours, uh, but everything's been handled at Eastman Chemical Plant in Kingsport. But uh, happy to be back, Scotty, and uh, now just kind of watching where Nate goes, see if we get any rain on this side. It's been like 20 days or something since we've seen rain in uh, Bristol. It's been pretty dry here uh, in western North Carolina. I'll kind of talk about our weather. It's been warm and dry. It's uh, been 20 days or 21 days. I, I can't remember. I, I have my tally mark somewhere. But it's been 20, 21 days since we've had uh, measurable rainfall here in the western Carolina. So we are looking forward to some rainfall maybe uh, from the tropics. And another place that has been dry is the uh, Charlotte metro area. Let's bring in James Briarton, who is in the, uh, the Queen City tonight. James, how are things down there? Oh, I think James is froze. <laughs> His picture is froze. So we will uh, skip James tonight, uh, who uh, is not with us right now. Let's go down to Charleston, South Carolina. We'll bring in Jared Smith. Jared, how's uh, things down in the low country? Well, it was nice for a few days, and then it's uh, slowly creeping up, getting warm. But it's not too bad. Uh, the uh, onshore flow and the onshore winds have been a little brisk, but it's kept a nice breeze over the area. Uh, watching Nate, let's see, uh, let's see what he does. Might bring us a little bit more rain. Just about all of our rain last month in September was from Irma. Um, so very dry pattern, very tranquil pattern aside from some of the onshore winds. Watching the tides a little bit might have some tidal flooding uh, at times of high tide over the next uh, few days. Uh, but yeah, it's really uh, going to be interesting to see where Nate ultimately ends up and any impacts that we might get from that. So back to you, Scotty. All right. And speaking of Nate, let's bring in our tropics uh, expert, Mr. Shay Gibson. Shay, I know uh, you've had a couple of down days, but the uh, tropics are back and looking to be active again. How's uh, things looking in your area of Charleston or uh, just off the coast there? And then, and then I'll let you go into the tropics first, uh, talk about what's going on there. Yeah, yeah. Like like Jared said, you know, brisk winds. We've had a, a pretty uh, fairly well established gradient up and down the eastern coast from the mid Atlantic all the way down to southern Florida. So we've had uh, quite a bit of wind. I mean, we we've had thirty miles an hour plus uh, gusting up near forty miles an hour for several days now. Today, finally weakened a little bit. We we kept it right around thirty to thirty three, I think. Uh, and then we'll, we'll the gradient will continue to weaken tomorrow. 
uh, a lot of shifting getting ready to happen so that that uh, blocking high will break down it will it will wobble out into the atlantic we'll start to see the winds bend a little bit more southeast we'll get some moisture starting to come up from the gulf and we do have the tropics to talk about i'll share a screen and let me know when you can see the screen that i have yes we got it you got it okay so i'm going to present to everybody uh we uh always have um, you know, the, these areas right here are typical areas uh, where you might see origination of tropical cyclone development uh, this time of the year in October. So uh, this is a typical spot to see development, especially in the warm Caribbean Sea. Very warm water, very deep warm water at that. Uh, it's been relatively untouched for, for some time now, and it's been left alone to sort of gather its uh, oceanic heat content or tropical cyclone heat potential. So we have um, the epipelagic layer of water, which is very deep uh, for the warm layer, up to two, 300 feet. I imagine that would be a question for Will tonight. Uh, what, what kind of signs or readings do you get from the water? How often do they drop? How deep do they go? Um, these are all important points of information, but I'm sure we'll find that out soon enough. We have Tropical Depression 16, which formed today, and winds about 35 miles an hour, pressure at 1,005 millibars. It's moving to the Northwest at seven. And the NHC track brings this up towards the, the United States. So we could be looking at another potential landfall hurricane from this, um, according to the latest NHC track. There's some model guidance that's a little bit shifty. Uh, there's some disagreement for right now, but the general consensus, especially from the Euro, is that it does develop this system. Uh, and, and we may see rapid intensification from it based on some of the latest parameters. The Euro is really on top of it. So we'll be watching that one. We'll be watching GFS and other models as well. Uh, the hurricane recon data will be extremely important for this as it lifts up. It's going to have some interaction with land, so there's going to be some potential weakening processes along this, this current track that may keep it, uh, you know, not forming quite as quick. So if we look at the uh, rainbow imagery, we can see that there is a, a low-level circulation. Um, it's, it's defined. It's well enough defined to call it a tropical depression, but it hasn't gathered enough convection around the core and really kind of blown up or... Uh, intensified to tropical storm status. That's why they're holding at 35 miles per hour. Uh, that's sort of what's going on there. The recon for today, uh, 1,000 confirmed, 1,005 millibars, or near that, maybe just a little bit lower, but for the most part, 1,005. And and so, you know, the, the real concern here is the Gulf, northern Gulf Coast. So if you live along these areas, uh, you might want to start looking at what you have prepared for um, tropical storm or hurricane force type of event for your area. And it's not to say go freak out and go to the store and, and all that stuff right now. It just means you need to be watching this area very closely. I would say at least twice a day, tune into your local news, tune into the National Weather Service for your area. If you live along this coast, very important to know what's coming and you have some time. So we're looking at Sunday for it to be affecting the coast. So that's uh, very important information there, guys, for everyone out there watching that lives along this area. Uh, and with that, I'm going to hand it back to you, Scotty. Uh, maybe we'll get with Eric. To introduce our guest tonight and we can launch right into uh our discussion tonight on hurricane hunters yeah we'll do it so eric i'm going to hand it to you and we'll get the uh, conversation started all right thank you very much and uh we're pleased to have on with us tonight uh somebody that i've uh, known kind of through twitter for a while and i've hooked up with here uh recently um, he is a 2011 graduate of mississippi state university meteorologist there uh got his meteorology degree and uh I'll let him uh, give us a little bit more of his uh, background as we get into this here. But um, for now, he is uh, with the 53rd Weather Reconnaissance Squadron uh, flying the WC-130s into these beasts out in the Atlantic. And uh, we're glad to have on tonight Captain Will Simmons from the U.S. Air Force Reserves. How are you doing tonight, Will? I'm good. Thanks for having me tonight. Looking forward to the show. Yeah, we are too. This is uh, an exciting topic, obviously a, a, a very topical uh, discussion tonight. Um, and uh, interesting to get this perspective from the air rather than uh, seeing everything from the ground tonight. So appreciate you being on. So I want to start off and uh, see if you might recognize, uh, let me do a quick screen share here. See if you might recognize the guy on the right side of the screen. Is that you? Uh, you know, I've been asked that. That is not. That's with the, uh, the NOAA Hurricane Hunters. So yeah, the, the wow. NOAA guys wear the blue flight suits. 
Uh, we we're, we're in the, the green oh, fight sure. series here. So actually, my uh, my mother-in-law actually saw that on uh, Twitter or social media somewhere, and she was telling people that was me. So even my mother-in-law was kind of confused, but close, wow. but same, <laughs> okay. same concept, but not me. I'll I'll let this roll for just a few seconds here. This is uh, this is actually video um, from the Noah plane then uh, as it was going into Hurricane Irma. Um, and there's the eye of Herm. I look back at the uh, when this video was taken and where the storm was, and it was just approaching the Leeward Islands with 185 mile an hour wind. So this is uh, this is what it looks like out the front of the NOAA airplane. And I'm I'm going to guess that it's a fairly similar view for you out there as well. So um, let's uh, let's start off though, backing up just a little bit. And uh, if you would give us a little bit of background on how you how you kind of got interested in weather. Um, where that started from and then how that kind of blossomed into where you are now. Yeah, sure. You know, it seems like a lot of uh, meteorologists have kind of a side hobby of aviation or vice versa. A lot of pilots kind of dabble a little bit in meteorology. So I'm uh, very similar, but I go back to a junior high. I started uh, really liking airplanes. Short story is I got my pilot's license when I was in high school. And uh, so I started in aviation first, flying airplanes, getting my license there and then studying for my instrument rating so that I could actually fly through clouds and uh, not have to cancel my weekend trips. So studying like for my instrument rating, I got more interested in weather in high school. And uh, that was kind of, I guess my fallback plan initially was going into some, somewhere in the meteorology field. So I, I got my degree in that state. So I started out the aviation buff, and then kind of transferred to meteorology. Uh, like you said, 2011 graduate from Mississippi State. I think I met you first like 10 years ago now. It seems like it's amazing how quickly uh, that's gone by. But um, anyway, so after that, worked for two years as a meteorologist, uh, the morning noon weather guy at a TV station, the CBS affiliate in North Mississippi. Um, had a lot of fun doing that. Uh, however, uh, my, my first passion of aviation kind of took over and I kept seeing airplanes fly around. So I kind of uh, wanted to dabble back into the aviation field. And uh, somebody from the Hurricane Hunters actually came and spoke to one of our AMS chapter meetings at state. Uh, so whenever she got done, I kind of picked her brain and made some connections. And uh, so finally, a couple of years later, I actually put those connections to use and made a phone call and, and it worked out. They were actually hiring pilots. Uh, so I, I get the front row seat now. So so it's been been fun. Yeah, the first one into the turbulence, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, so your, um, your interest then kind of was in, in flying originally, um, but, but the meteorology, was that, that was kind of your, uh, when you went into meteorology there at State then, that was kind of the direction you thought you were going to be headed until, until this kind of came back up then, is that right? Yeah, it was. I had a lot of fun uh, doing meteorology. I worked with some great people at the, my first TV station, interned at a couple of places as well. Uh, I love being able to communicate the weather with the viewers, as I'm sure many of us in the business do. Uh, the social media aspect, uh, you know, of course, all into that as well. But uh, just that first passion of flying airplanes kind of took over. So now I'm kind of getting to do both. I get to do stuff like this. I still go do school visits sometimes, and I'm still out in the community talking about weather and hurricane preparedness. Uh, every year we do a hurricane awareness tour where we go out to different locations uh, across the U.S. and the Caribbean, and uh, and we just kind of, you know, give people a heads up. Hey, it's hurricane season again. You know, be sure you're prepared for that. This is our mission. This is why we do what we do. So I'm still getting some of that public relation aspect and still getting able to fly airplanes and have, as you said, a pretty cool uh, uh, aspect or, or view uh, of some of these storms. It's a, a really neat perspective that many people don't get. So I got to guess that's fairly unique among the hurricane hunter pilots to also be a meteorologist. Uh, is that true? Because I think most of the meteorologists are probably sitting in the back of the plane, aren't they? It is. You're right. And I, I think that was actually probably one of the hiring points is, oh, wait, a pilot who actually knows a little bit about what he's fixing to fly into. So uh, back when I interviewed, I think, I think that was uh, did kind of help me out a little bit. And, uh, you know, I, I, since I've been here, this is my third season at the squadron now since I finished all my training. Uh, Air Force pilot training, and then uh, C-130 school would actually be a pilot in the military aircraft. Uh, so once I finished all that training, this is now my, my third season. Uh, but I've kind of put my meteorologist hat aside a little bit and just find the airplane, planning missions, all the stuff that goes along with that. It's kind of a full-time job in itself. Uh, of course, I still look at uh, models and do my own a uh, little bit of personal forecasting, I guess, but all the the official forecast questions, I, I definitely defer that to our at the Hurricane Center and, and our weather officers. 
Will, you mentioned how you kind of plan the missions. It, it, talk about the process of how that goes on. I know you guys get tasked right from the Hurricane Center to fly the missions, and then you guys kind of plan them out from there on. Yeah, exactly. So uh, Clark, we call it, chief at the uh, Hurricane Center in Miami. They we, we are waiting on pins and needles every day for the uh, plan of the day to come out. So it's the guys at the Hurricane Center every day looking at it, and they're the ones that actually task us as well as the NOAA, NOAA guys. Uh, if they want, say, a 12-hourly mission uh, or if they want to cut that in half, they want to fix on the storm every six hours or as it approaches landfall every three hours. So they're really kind of controlling how often uh, we're out there flying. And uh, so that come, that plan of the day, the pod uh, comes out every morning and that kind of gets us in gear. So this morning, for instance, we found out that we're going to keep flying this uh, tomorrow uh, and then through the week. So the scheduling shot was crazy with helmets on fire and uh, trying to get crews and, and, um, and planes put together for the next few days. So it definitely initiates with uh, NHC. Then it comes to us, uh, the schedulers who ultimately reach out to us saying, Hey, are you free to, to fly the storm? And, and safety, you know, is always a top priority when you guys are flying. And uh, I fly myself as a private pilot. So I mean, safety is the number one priority in aviation in general. Um, talk a little bit about how these missions are tasked with safety. I've seen a couple of Hurricane Hunter missions that the C-130 has gone out or the P-3 has gone out. Then they've encountered some mechanical issue or some issue and have to turn around. What's the protocol with that? Yeah, fortunately, we have a phenomenal safety rec- safety record. The C-130 is just a workhorse for the aircraft. Uh, it's a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling having four engines. Uh, back in my private pilot days, where I learned in a Cessna 152, so just having one single engine out there. So it's it's nice uh, having three extra engines. And the airplane will fly just fine on three engines. Uh, if we had to, we can make it on two, but the mission's definitely over at that point. Uh, I've been on one mission where we came close to having to shut an engine down. Uh, didn't have to, fortunately. We, we did some troubleshooting and worked it out. Uh, but there have been people that have been out there for, for whatever reason uh, and really not even as a result of anything the weather's doing, just something perhaps with the airplane. They've had to uh, cut the mission short. Uh, so we always have two aircraft ready to fly at any given time. So, for instance, this morning we had a crew going out to fly uh, TD-16, and so they took off, and then as soon as they took off, we have a loadmaster on the ground who goes to our spare aircraft, preps it, gets it ready. So in the event that uh, one crew goes out, they have an issue, and they have to turn around and come back. Uh, we have an airplane ready for them, ready to go, and they can just quickly transition from their old airplane to the new airplane uh, so we can still get out and hopefully make the fix on time because uh, we do all we can to help out the Hurricane Center and make those fixes. Uh, it's really important for the forecast. Uh, so we have the spare aircraft, uh, but we have a, a good good record so far, knock on wood, where we haven't had to do that too many times. Uh, the C-130, especially the J model that we have now, it's the newest aircraft in the, uh, the Air Force inventory for C-130s. Uh, super reliable aircraft, haven't had a lot of problems with it, so hopefully that will continue uh, this season. And we actually have 10 aircraft in the fleet, so they try to give us, of course, the healthiest bird uh, to go fly the storm to set us up for success in the beginning. That was going to be my question. How many planes do you guys have? And I, I know these aircraft are modified, right, in terms of the instruments on board, not so much the airframe, but they have different instruments on board, correct? Yeah, so our radar's a little more beefed up, I guess you'd say, compared to the, the C-130 next door. But like you said, the actual airframe itself, uh, the C-130 is good like it is, so we don't have to beef up the actual structure. And then we uh, have external fuel tanks. So we can fly, if we had to, up to 14 hours uh, by that point, everybody's getting tired and ready to land because nobody's going to come out there and refuel us anyways. So the, the fuel that we take off with is what, is what we have. So uh, my longest mission, I think, is uh, just, just under 12 hours. I've done that a few times. Uh, most of our missions, uh, when I was flying Maria uh, this past week, most of our missions were about 10 hours. So uh, we try to take three pilots just so one pilot or two pilots can fly about four hours, somebody can get out of the seat, do a seat swap, somebody can take a nap, and we try to work out the crew schedule so we can, you know, not not be fatigued. Obviously, that's a big part of flying airplanes as well as uh, staying alert. Uh, but yeah, chain aircraft, and yeah, we fly up to 14 hours. So it can make for a long day. Now, Will, I got a question for you. Now, a lot of viewers are probably thinking this. I'm sure that these flights are not all about having a, a nice, you know, easy breakfast with a cup of coffee. Tell us a little bit about the you know, the turbulence. You know, like how rough is this flight? You know, is it in, in comparison to 
a commercial airliner flying near severe thunderstorms. Put it in perspective, what you deal with on the plane as you're flying into these systems. Yeah, you know, you'd actually probably be surprised. The the exciting, very turbulent moments aren't too long lasting. And uh, for the most part, it is once we get uh, close to the eye wall until we break out into the eye. So I would say, uh, you know, cruising out to the storm, we're about 23,000 feet. Most airliners going across the country are at 30 something thousand feet. So we're, we're about 23,000 just because we're a propeller driven aircraft. Uh, but once we get about 100 miles out from the storm, we'll descend down to 10,000 feet. And we stay at 10,000 feet for, uh, unless something crazy happens, 10,000 for the duration of our, our fixed mission. Um, and at 10,000, I would say from 100 miles out till about the Iowa, uh, light to moderate turbulence. So similar to what you would feel in an airline, just amplify just a little bit, not, not anything to write home about. But then once you get to the Iowa, uh, there's definitely been a few times, uh, it's more of the exception, but we've had, uh, you know, like my a water bottle or something might have fallen off or, uh, um, you know, we kind of, you know, we have the, what's called a heads up display uh, in our aircraft where we can, you know, look out front of us and the pilot see the instruments right in front of our faces instead of looking down at a cockpit. So uh, there have been times where you're looking at the, the instruments and it kind of, it turns all blurry and it just kind of chicken soup. So I would call that more moderate to, I don't think I've ever had severe turbulence, but definitely some some pretty solid moderate turbulence right home about around the uh, the eye wall. Fortunately, in those moments, uh, just a couple minutes in length, we break out into the eye, and everything's you know a lot better. Then, then you got to go back through the other side to get out. So, times two. Wow, yeah, I'm I'm thinking you know flying into Category Five hurricanes like Maria, 185 miles an hour winds. You're are you going head into that or sideways? I mean, how how does the plane respond to to that kind of uh, headwind. I mean, you got gusts over 200 miles an hour. Exactly. And yeah, I was on uh, the Irma flight where we got winds around 185 miles per hour, uh, my first Category 5 hurricane. And uh, the weather officer on board, they have a lot of instruments uh, they're dealing with. And I can't say I know their system by any means, so I'll have to get one of those guys to you sometime. But uh, we do all we can to keep the winds coming off the, the direct side of the aircraft perpendicular. So the whole time we're flying straight into the eye, the winds are coming at our sides. So all we do is point our nose, crab essentially, um, into the wind to keep a, a straight course into the eye. So, and really the sideways movement, even though it's, you know, gust 200 miles per hour, if moving side to side, the aircraft really is pretty good. It's when you start getting the big vertical updrafts and downdrafts where some of us kind of sits down the seatbelt a little bit tighter and you start seeing the altimeter fluctuate, you know, plus or minus a few hundred feet within a matter of a few seconds. And that's when you're like, okay, let's, let's find a better area of the storm to kind of work our way through. But for the most part, the sideways winds, even 200 miles per hour, as long as you crab in to keep a straight course, uh, you'll have a few bumps, but it's surely the up and down movements uh, when the storm is really growing. Some of the worst turbulence I've had has been in tropical storms, really gaining strength and, um, uh, intensifying really quickly, but like stable hurricanes. I flew through, um, well, before I get into that, one of our pilots that did fly Hurricane Irma a couple of weeks ago as a Category 5 said it was one of the smoothest flights he's ever had just because I guess it had stabled out by that point and maybe there wasn't a whole lot of convection. It was just really strong winds. So I'm not quite sure the setup, but he said for him it wasn't turbulent really at all. So it just kind of depends on what stage the hurricane is in. Well, we have a, a viewer question that kind of goes in with what you're talking about right now. Uh, <clears throat> this is from Ron Plum Plumley. He wants to know about what what's the stress level for you guys as you're going into this uh, recon mission. I mean, I, I, we can imagine, you know, going through these bigger storms that might be a little bit higher. Uh, but talk about uh, what the environment's like, maybe what the stress stress level's like as you're flying into this <laughs> beast. Yeah, the, the first thing I thought of when you said that was uh, – uh, Harvey that I flew a few weeks ago, uh, had a two o'clock in the morning takeoff. So first I was trying to wake myself up and got as much coffee as I could. And then we, uh, try to keep a good bit of coffee on board as well. Uh, but as far as the stress, um, I, I'm, you know, this is my third season, but I, I think I'm still the, uh, the newest pilot. So I guess I'm still the, the rookie here. I need somebody else to come along to take that title from me. But we, we've been, we have a lot of seasoned, uh, very experienced guys here. So some of the people, the squadron have over 250 to 300 hurricane penetrations. Uh, so for them, I, I wouldn't quite call it old hat, 
but we have it down to a pretty good process now. We, uh, how we get out there, the patterns that we fly, what to do if we encounter certain turbulence. And even though hurricane season is only a certain point uh, or length throughout the year, we still fly year round doing training missions out over the Gulf, even though there's not, you know, it's nice weather and a pretty sunsets. We still do training missions where we're kind of simulating what we do in the storm. So uh, as you might expect with the air force, uh, you know, um, a lot of people think air force military overseas doing tactical missions, but we are air force trained and we put a lot of time into that. Uh, so as far as the stress level, I've never been really too stressed out or too worried. Uh, for me being a meteorologist as well, it's, you know, I have a lot of excitement just because of, you know, what we're about to go do and looking at the satellite view before I go out, kind of see the magnitude of the storm. Uh, so kind of a mix of excitement and, uh, but at the same time, like, you know, this weekend we have potential effects on the Gulf where my house is, my family is, our airplanes are. So, uh, it does, you know, start to hit close to home as well. So that's when you get maybe a little bit more stressed out about it. But uh, overall, you're flying with a lot of very experienced people. Will, if you could kind of go back just a little bit to, for those that aren't quite as familiar with exactly what goes on on the Hurricane Hunter planes when you're out, what, um, like, when you go out on a, on a mission, how many people are on that airplane, kind of just in general, what the responsibilities are of those people? Um, and then some of the equipment that you're using, uh, I know you got the radar that's on there, but you're, uh, I think there'll be a question coming up on, on drop signs, but, uh, you know, SFMR, some of that kind of equipment. Um, can you talk about those things? Yeah, definitely. So the, the bare minimum crew that we take out is five people. We have two pilots. Um, one is the aircraft commander who has the ultimate authority for what goes on on the flight. Uh, we have a navigator, <clears throat> excuse me. And the navigator does a lot of the mission planning as far as, uh, you know, we're crossing a lot of international territory. Uh, we do our best to stay away from land and other you know, territories that don't care for us. We try not to fly over their uh, airspace. So they do a lot, a lot of the, the planning with the maps and also the fuel conservation. They're always monitoring our fuel. They're kind of like the, the old school flight engineers that most plane or a lot of planes used to have. So they kind of took over some of that role as well as the navigating part. Uh, we had the weather officer. Uh, we called them the ARWU, Aerial Reconnaissance Weather Officer. Um, so uh, at least one of them. And then we have a loadmaster. So uh, those are the guys that are actually uh, dropping the instruments inside the storm. So five total. Uh, however, if we can, we like to uh, have a third pilot on board as well as additional crew members, especially for those long flights. Uh, but uh, we like to augment, especially the pilots, uh, with a, a third pilot so we can switch out because it is fatiguing. Uh, somebody has to, as you would imagine, always be at the controls, always watching the instruments on the radios, talking. Um, and, you know, we get up to stretch our legs every now and then. But uh, five is the minimum. Minimum. We like to take more. And as far as the equipment, uh, I do have one. It's an older drop sign uh, here with this. It's, you know, kind of a, looks like a enlarged paper towel tube almost. Uh, here's one of the sensors at the bottom. And then uh, if I were to undo this, there's a parachute on top of it, essentially. Uh, so this is the drop sign you probably heard a lot about. Um, and it's, we put it in a tube inside the aircraft. The loadmaster does, and this what, it's what falls down to the surface. So we, we drop these about 10,000 feet. Um, and it falls about 2,000 feet per minute uh, to, to the surface, collecting temperature, wind speed, dew point, pressure. Uh, and as it's doing that, uh, it's in real time, the information is getting sent back to the aircraft. And if you're on the, I saw somebody pull up the Tropical Tidbit site earlier. I mean, you can pull that information up as well in a nice, pretty format that our weather officer on the back of the plane is helping to put that together to make it a little bit easier to decipher. Uh, but anyway, so the drop sign is, is one of our, our bread and butter instruments. Uh, the designs changed a little bit over the years, but still measuring the same things. Um, uh, so very pivotal there. And then, like you said, the Smurf, the stepped frequency microwave radiometer, I believe is the, uh, what that stands for. Uh, so that's ma actually mounted on the side or the, the underside of the wing. And it's essentially shooting down from what I understand and also able to measure uh, wind speeds and what's going on at the surface by that mounted on the side of the wing kind of shooting down uh, towards the water. I'm not sure the exact verbiage there, but the Smurf, as you mentioned, and then the the drop sign, kind of our two go-tos. Uh, with Irma uh, and, uh, see, Jose, we actually had some Navy officers on board, and they were doing some some research with buoys. So 
a lot of the Navy officers were on board with those flights. I was on those flights as well. We actually released some buoys for the Navy. Uh, and so their equipment, we dropped it down um, and just along a line of, of longitude uh, every uh, few miles. And the plan was for the hurricane to track over those buoys. They were essentially floating a few feet down in the water uh, to kind of seek more synoptic scale what's going on with the, the ocean uh, as storms approach. Uh, with the with these here, once they hit the water, from what I understand, they pretty much stop transmitting, and supposedly they're biodegradable, so they're supposedly environmentally friendly. Uh, but anyway, so so they stop transmitting. But once we get the data, uh, the the weather officer goes through it, makes sure everything actually looks good, and then they'll send it to the hurricane center. Uh, I'm not sure the turn time on that; probably less than 15 minutes. Uh, excuse me. And then the Hurricane Center gets it, and they'll update the uh, forecast and the models as well. Now, the um, the sounds that go, the, you drop into the water to get the, the water heat uh, depth. Uh, how far down do those transmit, and, and what are you looking for exactly with, with um, these sounds that you drop in the water? Yeah, the sounds in the water, um, <coughs> I'm sorry, guys. You may have to talk for a second. I'm getting a little, I'm getting over some sickness, and I have to cough here in a, in a minute. Hey, if you'll talk amongst yourself for a second and get some water, I'll be right back. I well, promise. Not a problem at all. No. Not a problem at no. all. <laughs> Will's going to convince me to join the hurricane hunters here when the show's over, though. That's the. It's going to be the moral of this story. But you know, Shay, we see all this data, we get all these son data, and it's really interesting to see kind of how the how the sausage is made. Almost. I mean, you've got some data you were showing earlier. You, you think about all this stuff that goes on just in one hurricane or flight, and all the stuff they have to carry, all the people they have to carry. It's really. You know, it's an awesome, what's where I'm looking for? An awesome, I don't know. <laughs> it's cool. No, I mean, it's great. It's great. I mean, it's fantastic because we can, we can, all kinds of great data. Um, you know, like when uh, Irma was, was making landfall here, um, you know, th there's all kinds of information coming in from these signs. And, and this is really good stuff because you can get an idea of what exactly was going on at land. And then you have uh, wind speeds, gusts everything of this nature. And this is, this is a program through Google, Google Earth Pro. Um, this is a really good one. Uh, we use it, but it, uh, it gives you all the different points, the wind barbs, your signs, your different readings and things that are going on. So they try to get where the landfall was actually occurring. Um, you know, what, what was actually occurring in this spot. So, I mean, you know, it's just fascinating information that they can get just by dropping something down and get a vertical profile of the atmosphere all the way down. So from, from whatever altitude they are, it's, it's very helpful. So yeah. does all of that, I'm sorry, does all of that information from the drop signs and stuff also go into the computer models? I guess it does, huh? Oh yeah, it's ingested in the latest yeah. runs of the computer models. So, <clears throat> you know, depending on, on the run, some of it gets missed in the very next update. It may, it may catch it like midnight. And, and the, the hurricane hunters, uh, you know, they they drop their data and then it's either ingested in the next run if it gets it in time or, or it goes, and it definitely gets ingested into the higher resolution model runs because those, those up, up the re refresh rate is a lot faster. Uh, but yeah, your GFS 12 Z and midnight run, the Euro, the Euro midnight and the 12 PM runs both uh, incorporate all the data from weather balloon readings, drop signs, any of that information. Uh, they, they get it all. So if, if the GFS picks that up on a 6 p.m. or a 6 a.m. one, hey, that's even better. But you, usually you'll find that in your um, the HER and the NAM, the higher resolution models. That they'll, they'll pick that up a little sooner, especially the HER, because it, it refreshes every hour. So I think it might, might pick up that information, too. Yeah, that's a tough one. I think the WOOF or the WARF uh, model really zeroes in on that kind of stuff. Let's kind of re-rack here. It's uh, about 8.50. We do have Will Simmons, uh, Air Force Reserve Hurricane Hunter, with us tonight uh, talking about uh, the missions that they uh, fly into these hurricanes. So if you are watching tonight, uh, feel free to interact with us. We've had some uh, good comments on our Facebook pages and our Twitter uh, pages. So uh, I think Will's back, so I'm going to toss it back to yeah. Eric uh, as we uh, continue with the questions. All right, Will, so um, give us some ideas. You know, we've got all of this high-tech ways of getting weather information these days. We've got the new satellites. We've got, you know, radars all over the place. Why are we still flying airplanes into hurricanes? What are the benefits of that? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And uh, 
satellites, they're great for, we love them as well. Right before we go out, we step by the weather shop at Keesler. We get an update on, hey, what, what's going on? And uh, our weather officer, as you can imagine, uh, looking at a lot of products before we head out. So great for the overall uh, synoptic picture. We get the general idea of patterns and uh, a lot of the uh, high-res um, satellites now. We can see a lot of good features. However, uh, of course, lack of radar, for one thing, uh, over the ocean. But once we get out there uh, with... Uh, the dropsons, the Smurf, uh, the radar that we have, uh, all those things put together, we're still collecting some really good information that you just can't get from satellites orbiting the Earth, essentially. So uh, that's, and by us getting directly in the center of the storm and measuring the pressure uh, to get a, a, an accurate uh, pressure, that's, that's, if we can't get anything else, that's, that's what the Hurricane Center wants is, is the pressure uh, and the winds follow that. But uh, just, being right there in it and getting those really detailed uh, observations is what helps uh, the forecast. And the Hurricane Center has told us at least that uh, our data helps improve the or decrease that forecast column up to 30%. So over, you know, if you're talking from South Florida to some North Carolina, we can shrink that by 30%. We're ultimately decreasing the amount of coastline that uh, would potentially have to evacuate uh, we've heard numbers such as it, it costs up to a million dollars per mile of coastline uh, that has to evacuate. So we're saving the government a lot of money by ultimately being able to decrease that forecast cold. So we can get out there and find any kind of details as far as the winds or kind of changes of pressure that would help the models and increase the forecast and ultimately decrease that forecast cold is, is what we're out there to do. Uh, it saves the government ultimately millions of dollars. And of course, that question was uh, was devil's advocate there too, because working for an airline, I know that uh, you know there's there's just general aircraft, uh, commercial and others that are flying around that are also collecting weather data and feeding that into the models and so forth too. So, um, but yeah, it's uh, I have heard that before though. Why, why do we have these old airplanes and they're still going up and make, you know flying these very dangerous missions and putting lives at risk to do this? And, uh, I think it's a, it's an interesting. Uh, it's certainly a direct way of getting that that information. Um, so one other one other kind of uh, question, one other question that I had that uh, I've seen, I think others may not necessarily be aware of, is the hurricane hunters do not fly when the into the center of a storm when it's over land. Is that correct? And what is the reason for that? Uh, that's correct. Once it gets well, first of all, the land interaction. Uh, I mean, a lot of times we don't know the effects of what's going to happen when the hurricane or storm. Uh, passes over land, so it can get extremely turbulent. Uh, if we're flying out over the the Caribbean, there are a lot of small islands, but some of those islands have some some pretty good terrain on them as far as changes of elevation to it's pretty good peaks. I mean, we're flying at ten thousand feet, so shouldn't ever come close to it. But uh, for one thing, it's just the turbulence once the storm interacts. It's just something that we can uh, we'll try to avoid, and we can actually still do what's called a radar fix, even though we don't fly through the exact center of the eye and release an instrument uh, and drop that down to the center to fix it that way. We can fly just off the coast, use our radar uh, to kind of plot a circle around where the eye is and, and fix the exact center of the storm. We're not getting the pressure, but we can fix the exact center of the storm um, or, or close to the center of the storm that way. So uh, just the, the effects of the turbulence. And also we some cases we just don't have the diplomatic clearance to fly over uh, some of those islands out there, they, you know, they say, thank you for what you do. However, uh, we'd rather the Air Force not fly your planes over our island. So if that's, you know, the political part of it, it's also something. Uh, as far as the U.S., once the, you know, hurricane gets over the U.S., hopefully our radars are, are still up and running and really just not needed at that point. Well, is there any differences between your aircraft besides obviously the airframe, uh, more like maybe the stuff carried on board and the NOAA aircraft? Uh, you know, I've actually, uh, haven't been on one of the newer aircraft before. I've been on, been on one of their like kind of, uh, social media deals where they walk through the airplane, but I, I wouldn't be the best to comment on that, unfortunately. Uh, from what, I mean, they do very similar, uh, stuff to us. I know they do a lot more of the research aspect from what I understand. Uh, but as far as their equipment, uh, I'd, I'd be lying to you if I, if I told you a specific answer on that. All right. Well, I got a different question. I, I got a bunch. Uh, so sure. Um, so is there any difference between flying a day mission and a night mission? 
Uh, good question. And you know, I've talked a lot about about fixed missions, which is uh, for those that's when we actually you know we're generally ten thousand feet fly through the center and and we find the exact center. How we also have what's called the low level invest, and that's what one of our crews went out today in uh, TD sixteen. They did a low level invest today, meaning we're flying anywhere from five hundred feet to fifteen hundred feet, so pretty close to the water, uh, doing an investigation out there. So during the day, we can fly as low as 500 feet uh, over the water. And as long as we're clear clouds and can see outside and you see the water below, uh, we can do that all day long. However, once it transitions tonight, we have certain requirements where we have to climb just because uh, maybe oil rigs out there that aren't charted on maps or some type of vessel that has a mast on it that we're not picking up or for whatever reason, uh, so we have to climb at night to higher altitudes during low-level invest missions, and those are missions where we're trying to see if there's a full circulation, a closed circulation in all four quadrants. Um, as far as uh, flying the fixed missions, really not a big difference there. Um, and my first flight into a hurricane was Hurricane Joaquin, uh, 2015. It was at night. Uh, I think it was Category 3 at that point, if I remember right. So it, it was a night mission. Uh, and for me, it was, it was, it was just odd because we, we were getting bounced around and you, you couldn't see anything. I mean, if you're driving down the road and turn your headlights off and everything goes black, you can feel your car moving, but you can't see anything outside. And that's, so that was weird to me, my first flight uh, at night. I mean, it was normal. And as far as the fixed missions, we really don't change up a whole lot, if, if anything, but it is just a just a little odd to me, uh, not being able to see what you're going into, but still getting bounced around. You just have to trust uh, the radar and the weather officer and, and your training and everything's been good so far. When you're flying into these missions, do you ever get readings from the weather officer? Do you ever you know, have them tell you, hey, we just got a reading of this or whatever, or are you more focused on actually flying the aircraft? Yeah, and uh, we fly uh, on the au autopilot as much as we can. Uh, autopilot does a great job for us, and after a 12-hour flight, you know, we're all exhausted, so we just kind of kind of babysit what uh, George is doing to the aircraft. But, uh, yeah, so, so we're kind of right there with the weather officer. We're, we're into it as well. Um, so we're, we're watching the, uh, the wind speeds. We have it up on our screen as well, so we're kind of – reading it back as we go, oh, I just saw it. We just hit 100, or in the case of Irma, we were, oh, there's, you know, 150. But, yeah, the weather officer uh, kind of keeps up to date with, okay, we're now encountering tropical storm force winds. Okay, we're now at hurricane force winds. So, there, and it's just good for situational awareness. Um, I mean, we're not out, out there to find, oh, yeah, I got the highest wind speed, but just for situational awareness, it's good to know um, – kind of what part of the storm you're in and, and how strong it, it's at. But yeah, they're constantly talking to us on the headset. All right. Last question for me. And I promise I'll give it back to everyone else. Um, has there ever been a, an Oh wow moment, um, you know, during these flights or anything that really you know, catches your breath and, and makes you think, uh, wow, that was incredible. Yeah. And I, you know, I hate to keep going back to a couple of weeks ago, but Irma uh, first category five and which was also at night. You saw the video, a little bit ago on the, the show from the uh, NOAA aircraft flying, you saw the stadium effect. Well, I got to see the stadium effect, but it was under a full moon. Uh, and it was just, you know, the perfect storm, uh, so to speak, that coming together. Because otherwise, uh, I wouldn't have seen anything, which would have, you know, uh, we're not out there to, to see pretty things. You're out there to collect data first and foremost. But if I'm out there and there's a stadium effect, I mean, I'm a meteorologist, so I would, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing it. So it was... Uh, having a full moon out there, it, it was just, um, it was just, I can't put it into words really. I took a few pictures. We had three pilots on board. So of course two were flying. And so I, I was, once we got in the eye and, uh, you know, winds were relatively light, I was uh, taking pictures as well. Some of those were on my Twitter page and uh, the uh, 53rd weather reconnaissance squadron, our, our uh, Twitter page as well. They, they have a lot of pictures there, but I'd say flying in Irma, seeing the stadium effect at night under a full moon was I'm not quite sure how you could beat that view and you just kind of say, wow, I can't believe I'm doing this. One more for me. All right. This is a technical one. So there's, um, uh, you know, all this talk about mesovortices inside of the inner eye walls of these giant hurricanes. Um, and for the viewers out there, mesovortices are, are what we call vertical swirls. They're, they're sort of like, uh, uh, supercells spinning around inside of these eye walls, and, and sometimes they, they can cross the eye 
so I wanted to ask, have, have you had experience with these, and have you seen these actually crossing the entire eye where it would normally be calm, it's actually stormy? And what does that do for the, the flight? Yeah, uh, uh, over the past few weeks, um, uh, going, <laughs> I think it was also Irma, uh, one of the flights there, uh, we saw, and, and you know, some people think hurricane hunters will fly into anything, and that's not true. We do not want to fly into those meadows of vortices. We had a crew uh, a few years ago that uh, they think that might be what happened, but uh, they got into something like that. And, um, I mean, every, everything ended up being fine, but it's just not the situation you want to put yourself in. So a few weeks ago, we were looking at the radar, um, and the navigator is kind of our radar expert, and, of course, the meteorologist on board as well. Uh, and when we were picking up what we thought were those mesovortices, so uh, so first of all, we figured out a route to, to get around them. Uh, to answer your kind of second question there, I've never seen it go across the eye or where it's kind of isolated. It's more so been uh, off of the eye wall and then, I guess, more of a hook-type shape. Uh, it's kind of coming off the eye wall itself. But So fortunately, nothing kind of too um, singular by itself or secluded. That's just kind of coming off the eye, and uh, those are, you know, we have a, a pretty determined course, uh, kind of a crisscross pattern. We call it an alpha pattern going through the eye, and we'll definitely deviate around those tight vortices. Uh, I've seen water spouts before out there, so that's uh, kind of neat to see just as a meteorologist. Um, doing those low-level invests, we'll definitely avoid those as well. It, was that an, you said it was an Irma flight. I seem to remember seeing like you guys went through the eye and then kind of cycled back and went through the eye again. Is that something common or why would something like that occur? Uh, well, for one thing, these guys right here, uh, they don't always want to transmit data. So the loadmaster, they'll release the, the drop sign. We'll give it a few seconds. And usually they say, okay, good sign. And the data will start showing up on the computers. But sometimes you'll hear a bad sign or the, the data doesn't show up at all. Or if it does, it's just, uh, just really um, can't think of the word right now, but it's not accurate at all. So we'll, we'll actually do a loop around in the eye, kind of a holding pattern and uh, go back and, and hit, hit the fix again and drop another sign just to ensure we're getting the best data to give the hurricane center. And uh, that's not uncommon. We just try to turn into the wind uh, for those aviation guys out there. It decreases your turn radius uh, and decreases your ground speed as well. So we'll turn into the wind for the holding pattern and, and hit the fix again. But so that's the main reason why we would do that. And you mentioned 10,000 feet. What's the average like flight speed and stuff like that uh, when you're flying through a storm? So we generally fly at 180 knots indicated. Um, so reading directly off our airspeed. Uh, and that's because it's, it's a good speed for going fast enough to, of course, create lift and stay in the air but it's low enough that uh, it's also a structural speed. So as you can imagine, the wings are <clears throat> can bend a little bit and give with some of the turbulence and all the updrafts and downdrafts. So that 180 knots that we fly is a good balance of speed, but not going too fast, where if we encounter some type of updraft and downdraft that puts a big G-force on the airplane, that it would put like a structural um, uh, limit or uh, stress on the aircraft to put it out of limits and and hurt us that way. So kind of a good balance speed there. And uh, kind of a, my own follow-up to that, the 10,000 feet, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, we fly at 10,000. We would, the meteorologists on board would love to fly lower to get some of the best data towards the surface, but 10,000 is, is a good uh, safety margin for if something were to happen, that gives us plenty of altitude to recover or troubleshoot or climb back up if need be. So 10,000 is also a good buffer of good data, but also safety. So let's uh, let's wrap this up, Will. Here with uh, with one last question. Now I know um, you, and I'm sure most of your uh, cohorts are are full time uh, doing this job. Hurricane season is only uh, you know a couple of months out of the year that you're actually going in and out of storms. Um, so what does the off season look like um, when you're not? Is it is it mostly just training missions? Are you are you doing a lot of groundwork as well then? And and what does the off season look like for you? Yeah, we do a lot of training missions. Uh, I'd say it's about half weather flights where we'd go out over the Gulf and drop instruments. And also, <clears throat> excuse me, we have new guys coming in as well that need training. So, uh, for instance, this past year we had uh, several new navigators come in. So we'd go out and they would get their training on a three-hour three hour flight over the Gulf. We would fly our uh, alpha pattern, what we call it. 
And uh, so a lot of training flights for, for a lot of the newer people. And we have certain requirements as far as uh, we, we call it proficiency requirements. For pilots, all we have is we have to have one takeoff instrument approach and a landing per month. So pretty low requirements for us. Um, but uh, several weather flights throughout the year, we have a lot of public affairs events. We do flights uh, for, for some media and then we also have, uh, this is more so for the pilots, but trainers where we go off station uh, to different parts of the United States and do different, we do, I mean, we have a cargo aircraft, so, you know, it'd be a waste not to use some of the back end of the aircraft uh, at other times throughout the year if we can. So sometimes the Air Force actually task us uh, to move a little bit of cargo and do stuff like that. So we have some random missions that pop up throughout the year. Um, I'm, a, I'm a full-time guy at the squadron, but we do, we are a reserve squadron, so most of us, or most people at the squadron or reservists, they have a civilian job flying for the airlines or school teachers or several, several different things, but they come in one weekend a month and a few times throughout storm season uh, to be a reserve citizen airman. Cool. Thanks so much for, uh, for being on with us tonight. I think we all learned quite a bit and hopefully the, uh, the viewing audience also learned a lot about what goes on up there and uh, how important it is to, uh, to have these missions being flown and, and how it can, uh, you know, provide a benefit to everybody here on the ground as well. So thanks again for taking your time to be on tonight. Yeah, it's our privilege to be able to do it. And we like doing stuff like this out in the public as well, just to kind of uh, help make our mission known and while we're here and while we are still doing it and, and why it's important. And we'll be doing it for the next several days as potential Nate comes this way. <laughs> Hey, Will, before you leave, uh, do you guys have any uh, social media? I know there's a couple of social media accounts that maybe our followers can fly, um, follow along on your flights or, or, or data or pictures or stuff like that. Yeah, so as far as following along on, on flights itself, you saw Tropical Tidbits. That's my go-to. But uh, our official social media for Twitter is 53rd WRS, so 53 uh, RD 53rd and weather reconnaissance squadron WRS. That's our Twitter handle. And uh, as soon as we land from flights, there are several of us that uh, will send pictures to, uh, to that account and they'll, they'll get posted pretty quickly after that. So that's the official Twitter page. And then on Facebook, if you just type in uh, air force, her uh, AF reserve hurricane hunters, I think it is a lot of good content on there as well. And you can follow us uh, several of us uh, meteorologists mostly, and then kind of myself, since I did that formerly, uh, we're always updating that with uh, a lot of good pictures from our flights, just because it's such a great perspective, and we know a lot of people want to see it. Cool. Well, thanks yeah. for uh, thanks for being with us tonight. Uh, we appreciate it, and uh, we hope that you have safe flights, and uh, hopefully you guys won't be too much more busy, or hopefully uh, Nate will be about it. <laughs> I know it. Uh, shame on me. I had a weekend trip planned this weekend. It's looking like I'm going to have to cancel, but that's, that's my fault for scheduling it during hurricane season. So. <laughs> You got to, I mean, it, it's, it seems like this is the third year in a row that the Carolinas have dealt with something tropical. So uh, October yeah. seems to be busy now. So we appreciate it. We'll uh, stick around if you want to, but uh, we are going to go to our uh, tweet of the weeks and uh, let the guys uh, get ready to uh, have their uh, tweets ready. Is anybody ready to share theirs? Uh, anybody want to go first? Boy, we really need a foghorn like weather brains because I forgot <laughs> about this. And, um, I've I've got one if you want me to jump. All right, in. Eric, you're first, buddy. All right, let me do a screen share here. So I talked mentioned at the very front of the show here that it's been really dry around here, and um, so this is uh, this is a picture of the Mississippi River out here at Memphis, the uh, uh, the new bridge we call it. There we're looking towards, and uh, kind of a recreational area called Mud Island there on the right hand side, um, and uh, this is low water. This is uh, actually the we're right now, the Mississippi River at Memphis is uh, one of the, well, I guess it'd be the bottom 10 uh, lowest levels on record here in Memphis. It's at about minus six and a half, minus seven feet. Um, and what you see right there in the middle, this is uh, the Memphis Riverfront that has uh, tweeted this, but it, they say it's the invasion of the pipe monsters. Actually, that's uh, dredging that is being taken place where they're uh, clearing out the silt and the mud buildup uh, on the bottom of the river to make sure there's enough draft to get the boats through here. So. Um, that's uh, part of what happens when uh, areas, especially to our north, don't get enough rain. The uh, river drops and uh, they have to take uh, necessary uh, steps to make sure that the commerce continues to flow here in Memphis. Wow. Interesting stuff. All right. I found one, Scotty. Um, All right. 
This is an interesting weather follow. Uh, I've been following this guy for maybe a month and a half now. He's a cranky weather guy on Twitter. Um, but he's a really smart dude who really tweets some interesting graphics every once in a while. And this is a, kind of talking about the model spread with 16 slash uh, talking about how there's such a strong amount of uncertainty still, uh, and hopefully how this little area of vorticity here will uh, resolve itself by tomorrow, and then we should have better data as we go into tomorrow afternoon's runs. But it, this guy has some really good stuff. Uh, go back through his feeds, and he's got some neat you know, explainers he does, some good graphics, and uh, things like that to follow everyone as well. It is my goal to get him on the show. I follow him too, and he has some well, great hey, stuff. Shout out, you know. Let, let's uh, let's get him on now. Let's we'll see what we can do. All right, I think Jay, uh, Jared's got his pulled up. So Jared, go yep. ahead. Sure do. And I and I third the cranky weather guy recommendation. He's amazing. Uh, does great stuff. So what I got here is um, uh, something a little different. We got butterflies. And um, I, this came across my feed from uh, Penn State Radar Meteorology. And uh, they retweeted this. And so this is a painted lady uh, butterfly invasion in eastern Colorado. And so here's the reflectivity. You can see that. Uh, you can see the animation there. And uh, so that's uh, that 88D is getting a lot of... Uh, butterfly effect so to speak and then i think the coolest one though is where you see it, he calls it the wind drift kind of like i guess the butterflies are almost having to do a, a, a maneuver like the hurricane hunters here where they're oriented southwest but moving towards the northwest because they can't deal with the headwinds and so you can see this on the 88d um where you see the velocities going from southwest to northwest uh but the orientation of the um Biologicals is a little different. So, uh, love the 88D. It's it's still uh, despite its uh, despite its name is still a, a really fantastic instrument. And uh, thought this was a really cool radar nerdery to share with the group tonight. Cool. All right, so I've the got... butterflies are crabbing. Then is that right? The butterflies are actually crabbing. That's what that sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. I've got mine. Hopefully, you guys see mine. Yep. Yep. All right, so this is uh, in Boise, Idaho. Let me see if I can get this video going. This is a flooded street, and I want you to watch the fire truck. Someone had a bad day. Uh, turn around, don't drown, right? That's that right. Years ago. Yeah, so, yeah, even fire trucks can't go through flooded roadways. So when Nate, uh, wherever Nate ends up this weekend and early next week and there's some flooding, remember, turn around, don't drown. Don't be like the fire truck and get stuck in the floodwaters. Well, here's mine. Um, Philip Klotzbach put this one up. And uh, this is um, all uh, landfall locations for continental U.S. hurricanes during October since 1851, uh, which that's, that's pretty far back. I mean, you know, forensics has gotten really well with going back and, and studying storms and, uh, you know, and getting these statistics, but you can see how often Florida gets hit. And, you know, this, this, you know, event coming together down in the Western Caribbean uh, with taking aim on this part of the country sort of falls right in line with it. So, uh, you know, the, the Gulf of Mexico remaining warm, uh, that is, that is a definite possibility. So it, basically with, if Nate forms and uh, it hits any part, portion of this land, uh, it would definitely become another statistic to sort of further this one. So I don't know. Not as significant as Jared's. I think Jared takes the cake with his butterflies tonight. <laughs> uh, I would be reminded, uh, say, uh, this time two years ago, we were looking at the uh, the great historic flood in, in your area, Shay and uh, Jared, with the Charleston flooding. With uh, I, I know Will was talking about Joaquin earlier. Uh, so can you guys believe it's been two years since, since that event happened in, in your area? Gosh, yeah, that was, you know, Joaquin, you know, looking at, looking back, uh, I did this extensive blog on it and <clears throat> put so much information there. It took me, I think it took me like two days to make the blog. It ended up being a ridiculously long blog, but uh, there was so much going on in that. It was, that was such a unique event. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of terms for it, the thousand year storm, the 14 trillion atmospheric gallon storm. I mean, you name it, there's all kinds of names for it, but just, just unique, you know, uh, but, but, you know, after seeing Harvey, you're like, wow, I mean, the October flood event, it was really kind of minuscule compared to what happened over there in Texas this year. So you're just like every year, 
you're just wowed by these massive rain events. And it seems like, you know, they're just getting, um, uh, you know, worse in, in the last few years. So we'll, um, and, and tidal flooding and sea level rise also doesn't help with that either. So, yeah. And then, uh, Ricky, yeah. this time a year ago, we were out uh, in Fayetteville chasing Matthew. <laughs> yep. And, uh, this time this year, it looks like another tropical storm wants to pay the Charlotte race and visit. So, I don't know what it is with that race, but apparently it's uh, not doing well for us. But hey, it uh, helps us out, I guess. So that's right, that's right. Well, let's uh, let's close the show out. Uh, let's talk about next week. Um, let me pull up the schedule right quick. My phone's not agreeing with me. We have uh, Taylor Trogden on with us. Uh, he's going to be talking about uh, storm surge with the National Hurricane Storm Surge Unit. Uh, so kind of fitting with what's going on in in the weather world. We're going to have uh, Taylor, I guess. We'll have Taylor on with us unless crazy stuff happens, right, Eric? Isn't this yeah, a reset show too? <laughs> was it wasn't this supposed to be a show and then like Harvey happened or something? I thought. No, this is a first attempt. We'll just hope oh, that we can get it in. Somebody think, else we have the Hurricane Center. Then. It was Reynolds Wolf. That was yeah. the uh, ah. that was the Harvey one. Gotcha. Uh, so yeah, Eric, Eric, see if he can show up with boots on and you know waterproof phone and just go live and talk about it. <laughs> search. <laughs> Let's do that. <laughs> yeah, so we'll, we hope that we'll have Taylor on with us next week uh, talking about the uh, storm surge unit there at the National Hurricane Center. And then at uh, 10.18, we don't have anything. I just noticed that earlier today. So we are working to get something booked for that. And then to close out October, we have Cat Kimball on, on October 25th. So that's what it looks like for the next few weeks here for the Carolina Weather Group. We appreciate you watching tonight. Please feel free to subscribe to our podcast and share it out to all your friends. And uh, give us some comments on uh, some upcoming shows that you'd like to see. So for everyone here, we hope you stay safe. Monitor uh, Nate will be live all weekend giving you the updates. I'm sure James and I will be doing some updates uh, this weekend about uh, what Nate will be doing. So uh, follow along on our social media pages. And until then, we'll see you next Wednesday night.